What I would like to talk about this evening is the search for self and the search for no self. And I'd like to begin with a story called The Golden Eagle. A man once found an eagle's egg and he put it in the nest of a backyard hen. The eagle had hatched with the brood of chicks and grew up with them. All his life the eagle did what the backyard chickens did thinking he was a backyard chicken. He scratched the earth for worms and insects. He clucked and cackled. And he would thrash his wings and fly a few feet into the air. Years passed and the eagle grew very old. One day he saw a magnificent bird far above him in the cloudless sky. It glided in graceful majesty among the powerful wind currents, with scarcely a beat of its strong golden wings. The old eagle looked up in awe. Who's that? he asked. That's the eagle, the king of the birds, said his neighbor. He belongs to the sky. We belong to the earth. We're chickens. So the eagle lived and died a chicken, for that's what he thought he was. I think probably many of us would actually feel a lot happier with this story if it had a happy ending. (laughs) If the old eagle looked up in the sky and the sight of this majestic eagle flying above him suddenly kind of woke him up to his true nature so that he could then stop being a chicken and fly off to live in the skies with all the other great eagles. Um, There's a strong element of fairy tale fantasies that can exist in our lives. Looking for happy endings to happen in magical ways. We, a lot of us, grow up on a diet of fairy tales and sometimes it's a little difficult to renounce this kind of deep hope that somewhere there does exist a fairy godmother. I think sometimes in in this exploration, we wish that we could be touched by moments of illumination that would suddenly and deeply reveal to us who we truly are. I think in some ways that yearning for illumination, yearning for some kind of breakthrough, yearning for some way of just ending confusion, the yearning for those moments of illumination is often what brings us to meditation. We start to look inwardly for what we have always previously sought outside ourselves. We start to look in silence and in stillness and clarity for a depth of understanding that we hope will bring about the end of seeking. That we hope will bring about some enduring answer and liberating answer. Now, on one level, of course, it is very true to say that the the spiritual life and the spiritual path is not something that is 
you know, lacking in direction. It's not something which is pointless. But it is also totally true to say that this exploration is not one that is acquisitive. It's not concerned with accumulating spiritual credentials. It's not a journey that goes anywhere at all if it's undertaken with any kind of ambition. If it's undertaken with any kind of ambition to become a model of spiritual excellence, you know, with a portfolio of spiritual experiences. It tends also to kind of stop dead in its tracks if we start to look on this, this path as a path to somewhere else as a path to some future experience or some future destination. I think we experience that within our own practice. The moment we start postponing clarity or postponing renunciation or postponing connection, what we have is confusion, disconnection, lack of clarity. This journey actually is one that is intended to return us to the heart of this moment, to understanding our own essence, the suchness of each moment, to understanding the richness of silence. It's a journey which actually returns us to very simple questions again and again. What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be free? And who are we? Who am I? Now, as we return again and again in this practice to this moment, we pay attention, there are certain changes and experiences that come about, but they're not intended in any way to be building blocks out of which we construct a new and better self. Unfortunately, it is difficult when we start looking for who am I, it's hard to resist the temptation to look for a better I than the one we've had before. And I think this is often a kind of um, a temptation that we find ourselves falling into, looking for a better, a new, an improved self a spiritual identity which feels more spiritual and more acceptable than the self we've had before. This, of course, doesn't happen in meditation. We don't get a better self. We do have self with different definitions. It's not essentially a better self. To have better definitions for a self doesn't mean that we have a better self. It just means that we have nicer descriptions. For the same self. <laughs> kind of like putting new coats of paint on a car. It's still the same car, it's just got a different coat of paint. Anyway, that's, that, that is not the intention of this practice at all. It is simply not the intention. Rather that the experiences and the openings and the changes, as we've spoken about before, that come about through this practice simply reveal to us our own possibilities. The experiences and the changes, the actual purpose of meditation is to actually strip away the beliefs in self that we have accumulated in our lives. 
Now this is uh, at times perceived as being a rather negative thing to do. You know, that we want to strip away the beliefs themselves. But actually what we experience as we begin to do this, this is actually not negative, it's actually quite liberating. The difficulty is that meditation, we don't have many choices about what beliefs we strip away. If we're trying to have choices about what beliefs we'd like to strip away about self, then we're going to end up quite some difficulty. The experiences of meditation strip away many of the identities which we have dedicated our lives to creating. These beliefs are limiting and they are dissolved in the light of clarity, in the light of our own experience which sees them to be false. And this experience is necessary, this clarity is necessary. We can listen to thousands of talks and wonderful instructions that tell us again and again that our true nature is not separate, that it is not fearful, that it is not limited. We can listen to incredibly wise people tell us that we have no need to live at the mercy of our minds or hostage to our conditioning or hostage to confusion. We can have lots of wise people tell us that conflict is simply not necessary, that there is a place within us of great grace, of serenity, of harmony, of compassion. We can listen to many teachings that tell us that the about our essential freedom, that we are not the mind and not the body, not anything that can be described. But actually these are all the words and all the stories of other people. And no matter how much we long to believe in them or how much we long to trust in them, unless we understand those words for ourselves, we end up like the old eagle, always looking at admiring the image of somebody or something else, not actually knowing that that image is only a reflection of ourselves. And sometimes this exploration that we engage in inwardly, it is uncomfortable. It is not intended to be comfortable. It is not intended to be comfortable. I've never come really across any, any spiritual path whose primary concern is the comfort of the seeker. It's simply not intended to be comfortable. Part of the discomfort is this kind of um, combination that we often carry within ourselves of both aspiration and doubt. That on one level within us there is the aspiration the inspiration, the yearning, the seeking for freedom, for wisdom, for letting go, for compassion, for serenity. It's another part of ourselves that basically lives in chronic doubt that says, you know, I mean, really, what proof is there? What proof is there that there's such a thing as liberation? You know, what guarantees are there? Um, 
how do we actually know with any certainty, you know, that anything really worthwhile is going to come as a result of all these hours of aching knees and aching backs and, you know, nonsensical minds? How do we know that any of it really means anything at all? And this doubt, of course, often arises. How do we, how do we know there's such a thing as as truth or liberation or enlightenment? What do we know? Just because somebody says doesn't mean for us that it feels true. And actually, there is no cure for this kind of chronic doubt except experience. And it's good. There's no cure for it except experience. That we have to see for ourselves. At some point we have to take that that step or that leap where we're willing to go a little bit beyond what feels comfortable, a little bit beyond the confines of our doubt and just kind of jump and see what happens. Now, this, this exploration that we do in meditation this said, is a search to discover who we truly are. It's often described as this. Now, this search that goes on inwardly tends to mirror much of the searching that has gone, else, gone on throughout the rest of our lives before us. Our lives, in a way, if we reflect back in our lives, our lives are almost like a map in which we have searched for definition. Our lives are like a record of seeking for an identity, for a self that fits us, that we feel in harmony with. Another way of looking at it is to say that our lives are a record of becoming, a record of identities born of identification. Our lives are a record of entering into different states of becoming. Much of the motivation in that searching that goes on in our lives is because we equate uh, having a kind of definite sense of self with happiness and security. We're encouraged to be someone, to be someone special, to be someone unique, to be someone at least in the world. Anyone at all, but be someone is the basic kind of encouragement in our culture. Because if you are someone, someone, you know, then other people know that you're someone and you make an impression in the world. You know, either you get admired or you get disapproved of. But at least there's somebody home. To have nobody home is not an acceptable state of being. In our culture, somebody is actually supposed to inhabit this house, otherwise you're described as being kind of dysfunctional. So we do pick this up some, to some degree because we see that actually in our lives, when we felt to be no one, when we felt to be no one, we often feel very fragmented and very fearful. Because everybody, we live, to be no one in a world of someone it's to feel really lonely and really isolated, you know, and everybody seems to know something you don't know. You know, there are somebody out there doing this, somebody things in the world, you know, being a wife or being a mother or being a father or being a businessman, but they all seem to know what it's all about, you know. And if you feel like you're no one, 
Then, of course, you feel like you sort of lost the race, so you didn't quite get started somehow, you know, that everybody else has already passed the finishing line, and you're still kind of struggling to figure out, well, who am I? So we do have this encouragement all the time, be someone, you know, be someone in the world. And we can see the sense of it, because it's no fun feeling isolated, feeling fragmented, feeling fearful. It's no good going through like pretending to be someone when we don't actually believe it. I mean, that's a horrible feeling because they're always afraid somebody's going to find out that there's actually nobody home, even though we've done a really good job of painting the house and putting a new door knocker on and a new signpost on. There's always the fear that somebody's going to find out. You know, and then what's going to happen? If somebody finds out there's nobody really home in the house, you know, they're going to take it over. They're going to, you know, you're going to be burgled. You're going to be, you know, something terrible is going to happen if there's nobody home. So we look and we see also when we don't feel very strong about who we are, we tend to live at the mercy of other people's expectations and values seems like nobody being home feels like being very weak sometimes. Like other people have got all these strong expectations and strong values and strong demands that come from their very strong sense of self. And that if we don't, then often we feel that we are at the mercy of that strength. We are somehow bound to obey the power of other people's expectations and values. And the solution that is often then sought for is that the way out of that is to have a stronger sense of self. Now, self seems to provide some kind of inner authority. Now, it does seem clear that when we have no inner authority, that we live as a reflex, reacting to the desires and the demands of other people. And that is what happens when we have no inner authority. We find ourselves, if if we're praised and approved of, we're allowed to feel good about ourselves. And if we're disapproved of or blamed or judged in some way, we feel terrible about ourselves. We don't know who we are, so we end up doubting, doubting everything about ourselves. And we see that to have no inner authority is to live not as an embodiment of freedom, but as an embodiment of fear, always avoiding and holding always having our sense of self dependent upon other people's perceptions or our own judgments about ourselves. And somehow we come to equate inner authority with self rather than equating authority with wisdom. There is a difference between those two. Now, we experience that fear many times, perhaps, as adults, that fear of not having any inner authority. And certainly there's a history to this fear, this fear of being no one, this fear of of being 
disenfranchised in some way from any inner authority or authenticity. We certainly experience as children. Now, there's no child who is born with an unshakable self or sense of self or being. I've never met the child. I mean, maybe that. Mostly as children, it seems that we are kind of like clay and we are shaped and formed. Our sense of self seems to be shaped and formed by other people's standards and values and expectations. We learn to become what other people would like us to be, basically. Because this is the path of acceptance, the path of love, the path of reward. And of course then, conformity can become one of life's guidelines. Because, we, you know, if we have no, no sense of inner authority, you know, we crave approval. We crave, we, des- we thrive on approval. We don't know what else to thrive on. That also means, you know, to, when conformity becomes one of life's guidelines, it also means to some degree we must learn to hide and suppress aspects of our being which bring disapproval or blame or rejection. Now, it is, it's not just children who come from loveless or, or suppressive backgrounds who experience the sense of being shaped by the expectations of others. Even the most loving parents bequeath to their children their own values and their own standards. I'm sure when my children grow up, they will say, if, I, if anybody ever says to me, pay attention one more time, I'll scream. You know, they'll want to be these kind of scattered people because I'm always saying, you know, let's pay attention here, let's pay attention here. It is not just, it is just that we inherit what we are exposed to. Now, when we see the kind of, the ways in which we inherit in our early years, a kind of self-definition, part of it's imposed upon us, part of it we long for, because we don't feel to have one within ourselves, and then therefore it feels the only place we're going to get one is if somebody else gives it to us. So, in a way, we long for self-definition. Now, as we grow up, for most of us, this craving, to some extent, lessens. To some extent, lessens. We discover more, we decide a little bit more, perhaps, what kind of self we'd like to be in the world. We, we have a sense of, of what limits us, perhaps, and what undermines us, and we're maybe willing to make more choices willing to cast off expectations or standards or, or things we're exposed to which undermine our sense of respect and, and dignity. We're no longer, as we grow up, so much making choices and directions which are totally dependent on the reward of approval that they're going to bring. We start to live a little bit more consciously, a little bit more in a directed way, Searching for a sense of self that fits us, that we feel in harmony with, that is not somebody else's. Now, in some ways, this is healthy. It is necessary and it is healthy. But I find, you know, it is necessary and healthy. We can accept that. But we also have to question that. 
Because in a way, there is this kind of cliché going around that before you can let go of self, you have to have a really healthy sense of self. Now, in some ways, that's true. On some level, it's true. I mean, it's good, you know, if we can sit with ourselves for an hour and not feel like it's total torture. You know, if we can, you know, be alone without feeling that we're going to freak out into some kind of nightmare that um, we're actually choosing to be here rather than having to be tied up to sit on a cushion. I mean, it's good in some way that we have some unnecessary, some level of integration. But I think we can get a little carried away with this, actually. I mean, in my experience, everybody here has got quite healthy enough sense of self to let go of it on the first day. You know, that we don't need actually to be sitting here for another month or two making it healthier. You know, we are not self-doctors. That's not our job here. It's to doctor the self, you know, and make it better. I mean, what, when will we be satisfied? Put it that way. <laughs> when are you going to be satisfied? When are you going to have a healthy enough sense of self to let go of it? I mean, when it's shining, when it's having cosmic visions, when it's filled with compassion, when, you know, there's never a moment. I mean, when? When are you ever going to be satisfied with the self being healthy enough? So, I think we have to be a little bit cautious, you know, a little bit cautious about spending too long on nursing the self back to health. I mean, it only actually needs a little bit of health. Enough to be awake. That's enough. That's all actually it needs. It doesn't need any more than that. So we've gone that far. Because otherwise, you know, I mean, we know what's going to happen. There may be a point where we're actually never satisfied. It's never healthy enough to let go of. No, I've always more to fix, you know. Something more to fix, you know. Look, there's that bit wrong, you know, and that bit looks kind of tacky. And, you know, there's always this kind of postponement. Who we are is determined by who we believe ourselves to be. That's the basic bottom line of clinging. Who I am. I am who I believe myself to be. Now, we may be able to see the benefits of some belief system about ourselves, believing ourselves to be loving, believing ourselves to be open. They're far preferable belief systems than believing ourselves to be scattered, lost, confused, but they are belief systems. And it is obvious that to be dependent upon any kind of belief system about who I am is to be bound to that belief system. We are bound to it. No matter how flattering or how wholesome that belief system is, there is a way in which we can simply exchange chains of iron for chains of gold. They're not better chains. They just are a different color. Fear is the inevitable result of dependency upon a belief system no matter how wonderful that belief system is. Fear of losing it, fear of it being threatened, the need to protect it. Whether our belief systems are defined by our bodies, our minds, our opinions, our experiences, 
the other result of clinging to belief system is separation. It's I, I am rooted within this perspective, this image of self which is separate and apart from your image of self. Um, now sometimes it happens in meditation we're finding ourselves still searching for self-definition and sometimes we feel we've arrived at one we feel we've got one this usually follows the result of some kind of insight or opening that we feel that we arrive at some form of self-definition we ask ourselves who am I? And we have a lot of words about our bodies, our sexuality, our minds, our personalities, our relationships, our identities, our roles. And sometimes we feel satisfied with the words that come. And sometimes the sense of self that arises we feel very unhappy with. Now there's a certain shift that takes place. You know, first in our lives we seek for sense of self that's not imposed or adopted. Then we more consciously start searching for a healthy sense of self, a more spiritual sense of self. And then at times we come, go a little deeper and we suddenly dawns upon us that in, at least in this world it's kind of tacky to have any self at all. You know, healthy or unhealthy. And we have a new word in our vocabulary about no self. So maybe we should understand what no self is. The self is empty. And now our job is to understand no self. Now there's a certain spiritual prejudice that happens around self. People think it's their fault that they have a self. People think it's their fault. You know, that they're to blame for having a self. People walk around with this very heavy kind of feeling, you know. Look at this self, you know. How many times did this self arise today? You know, I saw it there, I saw it here, I saw it everywhere. Look, I saw the self at dinner, I saw the self in the city, and I saw the self in the market. And everybody gets very kind of intense about it, you know, and I'm to blame, you know. I really should be looking for no self, you know, and this self keeps kind of haunting me. And so we stop barking at ourselves. Looking for no self. A friend of mine in the States told me about this experience she had with her dog. You know, she had this little dog and, and she was downtown in Berkeley one day and she, she was hot and she wanted to go for a drink. So she put the leash of her little dog around the leg of one of these plastic outdoor chairs and she went into the cafe to get a drink and she just got out to the tent and had that awful noise behind her, you know. And then she turned around and there was her little dog dragging this plastic chair into the cafe and barking at it all the time. And I think sometimes that's what we start doing in the meditation. We start barking at ourselves as if we're dragging around some kind of monster. But the only reason we're barking at it is because we think it's my fault. If anything was my fault, I wouldn't bark at this chair. You know, we just see a chair is a chair, you know, and I'm dragging it around and all I need to do is unhook his leash. And then no longer, not only do I not have to bark at it anymore, but I also don't have to drag it around. But because we take it very personally, we think it's my fault I have a self, we keep on barking. 
And we keep on barking because we keep on dragging around. And the only reason we're dragging around is because we're blaming ourselves for having a self. Well, self actually isn't anybody's fault. I mean, this is, this is actually really liberating. It's not my fault. I have a self. I mean, it's wonderfully liberating. It's nobody's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my fault. It's not my grandparents' fault. It's not my aunt's It's nobody's fault to have a self. The self is born of ignorance. It's nobody's fault. I don't have to be responsible for ignorance. I mean, why should I take responsibility for it? I mean, I didn't choose it. I didn't invite it. I didn't wake up the morning I was born and said, this life, I will be ignorant. No, we didn't choose it. We didn't invite it. There is ignorance. There is a fact of ignorance. Ignorance is delusion. Ignorance is something that can be woken up from. That's what we do here, to wake up from ignorance. But we don't come here either to, you know, have a bed or so, or to bark at ourselves. This is is getting off the track. And this is why when we start hunting for no-self instead of self, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we are not making a new mission for the self to engage in. I'm not making that new mission because I blame myself for having a self. There's this lovely story. It's a long one. It's a lovely story. One day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, who was very impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees. I'm nobody, I'm nobody, he cried. The custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a certain, there is a certain virtue in just staying with a simple question. Who am I? Can we find any description, any definition, which can be gained, which we cannot always live? In all the words, and all the descriptions, all the definitions that arise, does anything actually ring true? Does anything actually ring totally true? Is there anything we can actually call our own? Not the body, not the mind, not the feelings, not the images, not the history. Is there anything we can truly call our own? All the years of work and effort, we put into constructing a self or a no-self simply come tumbling down. It's a revelation which is also quite liberating. What if all those words about our bodies, our minds, our past, our futures, who we are, what if they really do not have very much meaning? Think of the conflict and the fear and the tension that would simply dissolve. It is like that wonderful Zen saying that says, When my house burnt down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. 
There are a number of disciplines and uh, traditions within the spiritual life that revolve simply around asking this question, who am I? Of just sitting with it, of just being with it, of just returning to it again and again and again. Who am I in the thought? Who am I in the body? Who am I in the mind? Who am I in the listening? Who am I in the memory? Simply return to asking those questions without any expectations of answers, without looking for answers. Because mostly when we ask those questions, what our answers show us is actually what we need to let go of. Mostly any answer, any answer we produce in response to that question, will reveal to us areas where we have constructed delusions and illusions, where we have constructed ideas, constructed identities, where we have grasped hold of a word and mistaken the word for reality. So it is useful, it is not that no answer should arise, because words do come and answers do come and we should welcome them because they really reveal to us where there is grasping, where there is resistance, where there is dwelling, where there is clinging. They are welcome, the answers. But they are never, they can never be solutions. They can never be destinations. They can never be anything in themselves to grasp hold of. Because the moment we stop with any word, we have actually missed spirit. The willingness to question, the willingness to ask that question, is really not having any desire to become anything at all. It is just not having any desire to become anything whatsoever, not to become anyone whatsoever. To really, it's a kind of change of heart to really be tired at the endless rounds of becoming born of grasping, to be really tired of it. And you have to be really tired of it before you're willing to stay just with the question without accepting some second-rate, tacky answer or some definition of ourselves. You have to be deeply dissatisfied, deeply tired of the cycle of becoming because then we are willing just to ask question, and not to be so desperate about answers, not to be so desperate to have some way of defining, some way of accepting limitation, of seeking limitation. Because every time we have an answer, every time we're really looking for an answer, in a way we're expressing a search for bondage, a search for limitation and confinement. To stay within a consciousness within that can question, to stay present within an awareness that embraces everything without preference, without judgment, to stay alive and awake within that awareness, deeply asking just, who am I? is in some very profound way to see the dropping away of constructions and the dropping away of identities, the dropping away of opinions. 
there is a openness and a receptivity and a wholeness, a completeness within that seeing and that awareness that actually has no hunger in it, it has no hunger for answers in it. It has no hunger for identities or becoming in it. Rather, there is a sense simply of completeness and richness and wholeness within the scene. It is the place of revelation. It's the place of revelation. And profound insight, liberating insight, is actually a revelation. It is a benediction. It is not a product of seeking, and neither is it a product of not seeking. When we sit in meditation, when we walk in meditation, I think the point again and again is is to learn how to rest in aloneness. The Buddha had a word to describe the awakened heart. He called it a kinchana. And a kinchana translated means one who wants nothing, desires nothing one who longs for nothing and one who regrets nothing, one who becomes nothing and dwells upon nothing. This is simply the, the nature of awareness, the nature of seeing, the nature of knowing what it means to be alone without feeling anything missing or deprived in that aloneness. And certainly the point of what we do here is to no longer mistake the unreal for the real. It is learning how to rest within that scene, learning the art of non-dwelling, learning that everything that actually we need to understand or need for understanding is actually born of awareness. And there's nothing more that is needed. To allow all things to without trying to embrace all things with a generous heart and allowing awareness not to despair about, not to get excited over any of the words that arise, not to look for answers, but simply to learn to trust in openness and receptivity. This is the place or the home of revelation. May all beings be free from clinging. May all beings be free from dwelling. May all beings abide in awareness.